I think I'm having an art attack. Welcome to another episode of Art Attack, ladies and gentlemen. You're here with your host, Lizzie Dastin, art historian, extraordinaire, brainiac, complete art historian maniac, and me, Justin Bua. And today we are talking about somebody who I don't know and I kind of don't understand why we didn't do before, but I think that we did a segment on Pablo Picasso. Right, we did a segment on him, but like a, but a, it was like a small beat. We didn't really focus. We didn't shine all the light on him, did we? Well, we've talked about Picasso a couple of times. We talked about Guernica, and we discussed right. his working and interpersonal dynamics with Matisse in our Frenemy Live episode. Oh, that's but right. we've that's never right. talked about early Picasso, and so I think or just that, Picasso holistically, yeah, exactly. Picasso holistically. on his own. Okay, so. Uh, Picasso is the quintessential artist. He is the probably the most, one of the most, if not the most, contemporary known in the minds and imaginations of everybody. The average, you know, Joe from you know wherever, way out there in Boise, Idaho. Picasso, yeah, everybody knows Picasso. You know what I mean? Whatever. I don't know why I did an accent because they don't have that. They don't, <laughs> I don't know if that was an Idaho they, accent, no, I don't even but know I liked what that it. Was. I don't know what happened actually, <laughs> but. Picasso is synonymous. He's using like, you know, songs like the Beastie Boys. I got more rhymes than Picasso got paint, right? So everybody knows Picasso. He's used in Apple commercials, Steve Jobs, innovation, invention. Picasso is actually synonymous with art. And I will really take that moment and shoot back into time and space when Picasso's mom said to him, if you're a monk, you will become the pope. If you're if you're a soldier, you will become a general. And then he says, "Instead, I'm a painter, and I became Picasso," which is so true. That foreshadowed what happened, which is Picasso's name is synonymous with art in itself. You can't say that about almost anybody. It's weird. He's a pop cultural icon, and this is a guy who came from a little village, you know, in Spain. And who knew that he would be? He would actually be Picasso. In fact, he was born with twenty-three names, and then his name—he didn't like his last name, which I believe was Ruiz—and he changed it to Picasso, which was his mother's surname. And from what I understand, he added an S because that was an Italian surname, and said, "I want to be famous one day. People are going to know me." And you know what I mean? Like he had that like real that big Hollywood idea about him as an as an entity, and he's like. Not only am I going to take Picasso because no one has it in Spain, but I'm going to add an S to it because I love the the flow of S, right? I love two S's together. And boom, he became Picasso. He was incredibly ambitious and really well-trained. And I think that that ability to render the form in a naturalistic way makes it even cooler of a gesture that he decides to throw out all of that traditional training and completely explode the expectations of art, reconfiguring them into cubism. So that I think wow, is pretty you just brilliant. went. Whoosh, I did. Well, that's the stuff like, that I whoo, like. <laughs> you just went. Forget about. Let's let's not. You know, we're just we're gonna go right there. Okay. Well, if you want to talk about earlier moments in cubism, I just you feel should. well. Yeah. No, I just feel like Picasso. Uh, you know, he did his. He was. Let's just get back. For his first word was pencil, lapis. Right. 
<laughs> Manny's looking at me like that is not. You do not. Nobody speaks Castilian here. Shut the fuck up. So <laughs> Picasso was seven years old. He started drawing, of course, because his dad was an incredible academic teacher, and he started studying with his dad. By the time of nine, he did the communion. I'm sorry. By the time of nine, he was drawing and painting academically. By the time, and I see his plaster cast that I've, I've copied which I didn't know this at the time, but I've done master copies of Picasso's master life copies of shit he did when he was 12. So I was copying a 12-year-old's drawing. That's how academic he was. I thought it was a full-grown, like, 35-year-old, you know, Ecole de Beaux-Arts artist, not Picasso, who was 12 that I was copying. That's weird. <laughs> by the time he's 15, by the time he's 15, he surpassed everybody in the school. So you imagine all these 20-year-olds, like, drawing, and then Picasso's drawing next to you, and you're like... Oh, my God. Damn. Just give up now. Like, oh, my God. <laughs> and that's what Picasso's father did. It's interesting you said that, give up now. Picasso's father decided to give up now when he saw Picasso's work. He said, I'm never going to be that great. At 15 years old, he does a painting called The Communion. If you look at that painting that he did at 15, the lace and the delicacy, the way the tapestry is so realistic, the emotion in the figures, and still the classicalness in the figures and the understoodness of light and paint and value and color and composition and tone is not normal. <laughs> Picasso is the first real contemporary uh, prodigy. He's a prodigy. There's prodigies very, very rarely. People think prodigies are, are more... Uh, more common. There's prod more prodigies in music, but not in art. In art, it's less contained. So you got to like, you can contain it in music and cut and like really, uh, you know, nurture it. But in art, because you're, it's a solo thing. You can't, it's just different. I'm not a prodigy. I don't really know. I know very few prodigies, but he was the one of the highest level prodigies. So if you look at all of his academic work, you could see why so early he just said, I'm not going to draw anymore. I'm not going to, I don't care about representation anymore. I'm going to go to cubism. I'm going to go to, you know, dabble in fauvism. I'm going to get into uh, construction and all that stuff. So yeah, now we can go to cubism a little bit more cleanly, but I want to, I want to shout out the Picasso Museum in Barcelona, whatever that museum is called, because I went there and I saw all his early work from when he was like, just a little kid to his teenage years, and it's shocking how good he was. You, people forget how people think about Picasso drawing on glass backwards and you know doing Guernica and doing abstract stuff and broken faces, Demoiselle d'Avignon and, and Cubism, whatever. But people don't understand the level level of draftsman he was. He was not normal. <laughs> I agree, and that is one of the most remarkable museums I've ever been to. And then in 1905. Picasso is a young adult at this point, and he spent most of his time working and living in Paris. And while he was there, he met two incredibly significant art patrons, Gertrude and Leo Stein, who were American-born. They expatriated themselves to France, and so that's where they really developed their artist enclave. And Gertrude Stein was a really early and passionate supporter of Picasso's, and he said... I want to paint your portrait. And famously, she ended up going to his studio 90 times to be painted. And then in the end, he didn't like the way that he rendered her face. And so he just scraped it off and painted interpretively. And I think that moment of interpretation is really what launched modernism in his own oeuvre and also within art. And the inspiration for the face was not Gertrude Stein herself. Famously, it does not look like her at all, but it was actually an Iberian mask. And that is a critical 
moment to discuss because it represents what the intersection of non-Western art with the Western modern mindset. And that's something that Picasso was one of the earliest people to really do and to synthesize was seeing these non-Western objects and using their aesthetic values to impress upon his own vision. And he did that for the first time in the portrait of Gertrude Stein, and then next he did that in Les Damesels d'Avignon the year following. First of all, I never knew that story about Gertrude Stein. Thank you so much for that, because that was crazy. Like, I could see that now. Like, it illuminates so much. And you missed, didn't miss, but I want to add one thing to the end of that story. Gertrude, Gertrude Stein was a little pissed off at the portrait. And she came back to Picasso with the portrait, and she said, that doesn't look like me. And he said, I know, but it will. Oh, I that, love that part. Yeah, that, so, that's that, so that's good. like a good, that's like... <laughs> I know what you're going to look like. I predict it. Which, you know, a lot of artists historically uh, during Greece, they said that there was a group of artists that would paint your portrait and they would paint you and then tell you when you were going to die. Like, because they could see into the future. Or they they told their sitter that they could do that. So people would go to them and sit and then they would be like, okay, you're going to die at 64. Yeah, it's like Dorian Gray style. Yeah, (laughs) so it was really heavy. But I think that's what Picasso meant by that. And I find, um, God, you know... That's why there's been so many books and movies and documentaries and fictionalized versions of Picasso's life because it's so rich, right? It's got all of the all of the trimmings of of great drama, great narrative, great story, great everything. I mean, you look back at Picasso was involved with with contemporary culture too. It wasn't just like he was a socialist. He was a he was a revolutionary. He was also um, you know a guy who was cutting edge fashion wise with his, his sailor stripe you know, shirt that was the traditional sailor shirt that Chanel, you know, made popular uh, in the fashion world. And Picasso was emblematic of that, like, fashion kind of icon artist guy. And he was, he was just, you know, it, you, you can't, you can't not talk about his personal life and his effect on contemporary culture. Oh, yeah, he's a whole ecosystem. Yeah, he's, a, yeah, right. It is. <laughs> yeah, really and he is. had all these, re- you know, he, he really was. And, uh, but I just wanted to finish out. He was a the, celebrity. He was like oh, a real, yeah. one of the real, first. Yeah, one of the first celebrities. And that's what makes him really sets him apart. And that's why his name is synonymous. And you could supplant art and Picasso and you wouldn't even notice. It's true. So, with that portrait of Gertrude Stein, another element of portraiture that he subverts is the background. Typically, if you look at a traditional portrait, you're going to see somebody with an object that they either purchased or an object that they could create or something that identifies them with their vocation. For instance, in Copley's portrait of Paul Revere, we see him with a silver teapot that he crafted. And so that identifies his value at the time before the his revolutionary moment of being a silversmith. But with Gertrude Stein, she was a writer and she she had a ton of things that could have identified her with her vocation, but the background is totally sparse. You can barely even see the whole form of the chair that she sits in. And so the entirety of the focus is in her, her body, her mass, the way that she rests her hands on her knees. It's almost like this stable pyramid structure. And so it's about also the interplay of positive and negative space with the hollowness of her eyes and this allusion to a mask. So a two-dimensional painting is really transformed into a three-dimensional experience. And it's about her essence and not about 
what she did, what she wrote, what she could buy. Yeah, and I, you know, that is the, that's the kind of time that Picasso, to me, is the best. You know, he's, he does his, uh, he he's goes through his rose period. You know, he's, he's the best at, in this era, I feel. You know, and then up to Cubism, and then after that, I kind of feel like he was just painting for money. Me too. Yeah, I think he really the Picasso's was. heyday is really 1905 until 1914. Yeah. That would be the sweet spot for me. But, and then Guernica, because well, that is phenomenal. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an artist or a musician or a celebrity who everybody, anything he touches turns to gold at this point. So that's why he's just like, yeah, whatever. Boom, 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 boom. Marks on a paper, boom, sell, sold. Boom, 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 boom. African mass, boom, boom, sold. He wasn't nearly as ambitious. I feel like it was just like cha-ching, 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 cha-ching. Other artists have got there before. It's hard to keep the passion. Other musicians have got there before. It's hard to keep that passion. Now, I feel like he was incessant. Like, did you know, let's go back in time a little bit. When Picasso was punished, he was put into a room with a white wall. Did you know this? Mm -hmm. And all he was left with was a pencil and a pad of paper. And he said, I didn't care that I was punished with a room with no uh, windows. I didn't care because I knew that I could draw freely without interruption. And if you would have left me there, I would have drawn the rest of my life without looking up. That's what he was saying, essentially. Which is like, that tells you the drive. So we look at his later work, and he's still creating, still doing. Remember, this is we're skipping over his life in 30 minutes here, but this is a guy who did clay and pottery and sculpture and found collage and painting and drawing. And, you know, so this is a guy who's experimented with everything, and maybe he can't stop. He's incessant about just getting it out. But later in his, but earlier in his work, I, I love the rose period. I love the blue period. I think that it's such a beautiful... Uh, understanding and a bridge of like painting and being painterly and being emotional. As we get later into Picasso's life, we kind of, his emotion is, is kind of gone and in, in a lot of ways, it's I not think. not as hungry. Yeah. It's not as hungry or, or feeling. It's just kind of like money, 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 money. But I don't even know if it's that. It's just I'm creating and I'm doing different because I got bored of that. I mean, who is 15 doing the communion painting? I mean, where, and where can you move? The fact that he moves so abruptly to Paris and so abruptly stylistically and he sees this other world of Impressionism and all of these movements unfolding, he gets into it. He gets involved. This is a guy who's hanging out at cafes. He's, you know, with multiple women. I mean, he's just living the artist's dream, the artist's life, right? I mean, he is, really. He's a young guy in Paris living the life. So you could see the fact that he's transforming into all these different... Uh, yeah, iterations know, of himself, it's too. It's just bizarre. It's amazing. It and is. Nobody, I don't think anybody has hit... I don't think any artist has been as prolific, and I don't think any artist has actually created more styles. And maybe we've we've all tried a hundred styles, uh, but yeah, has an like artist Madonna. ever? He's like Madonna. He's constantly he really, yeah. reinventing yeah. himself, like a virgin. Yeah, no I'm kidding. But oh, no, but, not like no, a but it's amazing that you said that because I was thinking Madonna. Like Madonna was a weird character that could invent herself for the times and reinvent herself. And sometimes it was a book. You know, sometimes it was a documentary. Sometimes it was a whatever. You know, Evita. But Picasso did that. You know, and it's hard to say because Picasso was incredible talent, and I think Madonna was much more of a creation. But all right, well then, circling yes, back to circling the art, back, yeah, you were talking about the diversity of his material choices, and I think that's a really good point. And we should talk about his sculpture. And to me, the most significant sculpture that he created was in 1912, and it's his guitar that was originally done in paper, and then he 
crafted it out of metal. And the guitar is so fascinating because if you think about what is typically rendered in sculpture, it's the human form. We do not make a body, but we render it through sculptural materials. But we make guitars. And isn't it fascinating that he would choose a man-made object and then remake it through an artistic lens? And the guitar itself is not functional. You can't play it but it is different enough from a guitar that you can buy that is also man-made. So it's just the lens of an artist versus the lens of a craftsman. And in my opinion, Picasso was really the first person to do that, to conceptually examine these themes. And the genesis of the guitar was that he went to this ethnographical museum in the early 1900s, and he saw a Grebo mask, this African mask, that really celebrates the void. And it isn't just about what is added, but what is subtracted, what is taken away. And Picasso and other artists who were contemporaries of his were really influenced by the aesthetic of these African objects. And so they assimilated what they saw into their own work. Now, an element that we need to discuss about this interaction is that it's it's ethnocentrically deforming because he was taking away the original context of the mask. And so we don't know the power of how it was intended to function in Africa. We just see it as a form that is translated through a Western eye. And so it's great that he is inspired by these non-Western objects, but it's still problematic the way that the objects themselves were interpreted. Well, I mean, you could say that. Or I guess the question is, could you say that about Degas, who incorporated, uh, you know, Japanese printmaking? Absolutely. Okay. It's the same thing. Right. So they they kind of, what you're saying is they co-opted a culture and integrated into this into their modern canvases and, you know, had it. But what's, what's wrong with that? Isn't that a great thing, though? It's just a, a thin ways? understanding. It's taking away, it's dismantling the original power of the object and not understanding that because... There's, it seems like there is a slight residue of an imperialist agenda. There's this guy named Edward Said who wrote about Orientalism, imperialism, and he said that the world is made up of two unequal halves. And whenever I look at these Western artists who are interpreting non-Western themes, I see that because they are just taking what they want mm. and translating it through a lens that makes sense to them. Mm-hmm. And so it isn't, to get back to your question, that what's wrong with that, I just think that we need more culture, a nuanced understanding yeah. of culture. I mean, I think that look, Picasso was a you know was he a bad person? I'm sure he was in many ways, for sure, with women and with animals and his bullfighting and all this stuff. Was he a good person? I'm sure he was in many ways with his liberal ideology and his socialistic you know understanding and wanting you know power for the people. But you know he was a complex, you know, layered, layered soul, and I think that I could see the understanding. Like you look at African sculpture, you're like, oh my God, they're onto something. You know what I mean? It's like bold, it's powerful, it's spiritual, it's got a conviction and integrity that's just I, that's like true because it's really about like your culture. And all of a sudden, Picasso takes a little bit of it because it's cool. And sometimes he's thinking he's not thinking about that necessarily. He's a brilliant man, but he's not brilliant perhaps in a in every single way. He looks at it, he goes, oh my God, that shape. Oh my God! That you gotta anim- appropriate that. That's yeah, what it is. and it's he's not thinking like I'm going to be an imperialistic Spanish conquistador. <laughs> he's really thinking like 
damn, that's really crazy shapes. But if I integrate it with my really kind of funky classical characters and I got this new style, that's how I get sometimes when I see work. I, that's what happened with me and watching graffiti in New York City. I was like drawing classically or whatever and I saw graffiti and it just I was like, oh, I got to take that energy and put it into my paintings. It's the same thing, right? So, you know, yeah, I was writing graffiti on the street, but I'm also kind of, you know, taking the energy of subway car graffiti and those rhythms and putting it into my canvases. And I could see him do that because it's new, just like Degas integrated photography, just like, you know, uh, Whistler integrated Japanese printmaking. We all do it and we, we don't know, but I don't, but I understand. I think that you need to definitely talk about it and say, this is the, yes, exactly. the other side of it. And what I feel specifically to that in terms of what's going, what's happened today is that that whole show that I saw of Picasso uh, where it was Picasso and African art. And that was just like, damn. You know what I mean? Like he was straight just drawing them sometimes. He was lifting that stuff. Yeah, no, he was just drawing it or sculpting the exact same thing and selling it. Then that becomes really specifically lifting. Stealing, you know what I mean? That's the level where it was at. But stealing, to me, the point of this is that he's stealing without awareness of the gravitas of the original, that it's almost culturally reductive because he takes what he wants and then doesn't really care about the context. Yeah. And so for me, it's all about context. And by no means do I think that this isn't a dynamic that's at play, but we have to just nuance our understanding of the original. So to me, that's important. I think on that note, I'm going to say this too, not every artist is always doing great work just because he's picasso doesn't mean that every piece of his deserves to be sold at 80 million dollars you know what i mean and this that's one i think does though the no guitar. But, uh, no but i'm not saying the guitar i'm saying like just in general like he, the fact that he did lift a lot of that work and it is kind of like you know it is it's stolen in a lot of ways and then some of his other work is just kind of crappy and then some of his other work is the greatest thing i've ever seen in my life and it's just <laughs> like i mean it's true and like yeah. not everything we do as artists at the highest level is always going to be great unless you're michelangelo but you know what i mean or tintoretto or that but you know it's he was too prolific to be that guy but getting back to the guitar and getting back to Guernica and getting back to Demoiselle d'Avignon, these were all really important, powerful paintings that really did alter and change the course of art history and made us think as, you know, as, as people in the world. He affected everybody with his art. Everybody. And then he completely revolutionized modernism or launched it when he and Georges Braque, they together conceptualized Cubism. So Cubism was a movement from the early 1900s until about 1914. That's why I say the heyday for me and Picasso ends with 1914, with the exception of Guernica. And the two of them had this rivalry where they sparked each other and encouraged that the other push forward and become even more experimental and innovative than mm -hmm. he would have been isolated. And Cubism, the basic tenet, is to completely shatter the illusionistic idea that a two-dimensional canvas is a window onto the world. Mm. And that is a very conservative way of seeing art that was really perpetuated in the time of the Renaissance. So we have perfect perspective. When you look at a painting, you feel like you're being sucked in and you can imagine existing in a bodily way in the space. But in Cubism, the fourth dimension is what they were trying to articulate, the fourth dimension being time. 
What does something look like in a duration? And almost that kind of circles back to what you were saying about Gertrude Stein. I don't look like this. Well, you will. That is an early germ of this idea of capturing the eventuality of things. So I think that's that's sort of a cool way that he evolves. And I think the name cubism is pretty funny because you never see a cube. Everything is a shard. And so it's very angular, but you're never going to actually see a square. So to me, it's kind of a, a missed opportunity name. But he strips the canvas of both its narrative content or an obvious narrative content, but also of its color. And he and Brock would use this grisaille color palette, which is a grayscale, in order, I think, to eliminate that distraction that color can provide, that it's about the forms, it's about articulating the world through the lens of duration, and nobody had done that. Yeah, no, I mean, he did a lot of things that nobody had done. That was like, once again, he's... He's Picasso, you know, he's, he's doing, he's, he's created movements upon works, you know what I mean? Guernica created a whole, like, movement of, like, people are like, oh, wow, collage can be that impactful, and, and art can be that political, you know what I mean? And I think, you know, Demoiselle d'Avignon did, and his Rose Period did, and his Blue Period did, and his, you know, Cubism did, and he always had these there's extra things that were pushing him, his relationship with Matisse, you know, his frenemy, right? He loved, that's a great portmanteau, once again, frenemy. Uh, but the great, you know, the, the, the great camaraderies and at the same time, that person in your life that can just push you, make you better, make you stronger, make you see things you don't want to, you know, you, you necessarily might not look into by yourself. And he had that historically. And he had relationships with women as well that were able to be inspirational and aspirational, albeit not very healthy ones, you know what I'm saying, uh, by today's standard. But he was definitely used those powerful females in his life, uh, his wife, the ballerina, and all the other uh, women that came in and out of his life to fuel his artwork. I think he used everything. You know, he was a user in a lot of ways. Like he used his women to fuel his art. He used his friendships with Matisse and Brock to fuel his art. He used African, you know, art and 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 Japanese. Whatever he used, he used it. It was all for like me, I'm the artist. And I just don't really, you know, and and I've heard before, and this is a really interesting statement, that in order to be really successful uh, as an artist and to be great as an artist, you have to be incredibly selfish. Incredibly selfish. Because you can't really be of service to anybody else when you're trying to be a great artist. And this is really, I think, how Picasso lived. Not how he thought, but how he lived. You know, I think that he used everything impossible to fuel his own artistic journey. And it was incredibly selfish, but he wouldn't be Picasso without have doing without have done that, you know, doing that. And let's end with a little anecdote about misogyny. So <laughs> Boy, this is why unusual. Not? <laughs> so Picasso, he, I can't remember when he died, but he had a very long life. In the 70s. In the 70s. Awesome. Yeah. All right. So my mom has an older friend. And when this friend was very young, ended up meeting Picasso. I don't know how. And he was really taken with her because he was a man in his 80s. And she was this young girl, barely 20. Oh, and he Lord. was trying to seduce her. So he took a portrait. He drew half of her face. And he gave it to her, and she said, you know, oh, my God, this is amazing. Thank you. Because at this point, he is Picasso with that capital P and all the extra S's. And he said, if you sleep with me, I'll draw the other half. And she uh, she gave it back to him, and he ripped it up. Wow. <laughs> so well, I just wanted note, to share that. 
<laughs> well, you know, Picasso was Picasso was Picasso was Picasso was Picasso. And this is Art Attack and Art Attack and Art Attack and Art <laughs> Write Attack. Write us a review. Yes. Yeah, guys, we, we do this because we love it. We don't do it for the fame, the fortune, the money. We do it because we actually, as you can tell, really enjoy talking about art and really enjoy sharing it with you as as we have both been teachers. And so uh, please just write us a review on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you can do it. And uh, thank you for listening. Peace.